You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you. Welcome. Glad you're here this morning as we kick off the season of Advent. If you're a guest with us, I want to especially welcome you and thank you for joining us and being with us. Uh, My name is Jordan. I serve as one of our pastors here at Redeemer. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and open to Isaiah chapter 9. So you can go to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be there. And then we'll also be in John chapter 1. So you can kind of find those two places and you you can hold your spot there. Um, As Rick mentioned earlier, we are kicking off the season of Advent, and if you've been a part of Redeemer for a while, uh, you're familiar with Advent. It's a a four-week journey that we take every year, and if you're not familiar with the season of Advent, I want to take a minute and share with you what Advent is and why it is important. I grew up in a tradition where uh, Advent wasn't a season that we celebrated, that we participated in, and so maybe that's you. And so what is it? Well, first, it's it's the first season in the historic church calendar. The, the word Advent comes from the Latin term that means coming or arrival. And the purpose of this season is for God's people, for the church, to fix their eyes and set their hearts on the coming of Christ. First, we remember and we celebrate the first coming of Christ. We remember his birth. And we then also dial our hearts and, and set our minds on his promised second coming, his return as king. In other words, The season of Advent helps us. It reminds us that we are waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled. Just as the ancient Israelites awaited the promised birth of a Messiah, of a Savior, we too, the church, are awaiting the promised return of Christ our King. And so the season of Advent, it helps us remember this. It is an invitation for us to slow down a bit and set our hearts and minds on Christ and his coming, which we need, don't we? I mean, you probably have felt it. The Black Friday stuff happened this weekend, the holiday plans. In our culture, this is the time of year where we kind of get worked up into a bit of a frenzy. Advent actually invites us to slow down and to locate ourselves, not in the frenzy of our culture, but in the truth of the biblical story. It invites us to locate ourselves in reality, that we live between the two advents of Christ. And so we're going to explore that over the next four weeks using the traditional themes of Advent. We'll, follow, we'll look at the themes of hope, the hope that comes, has come and will come in Christ, joy, peace, and love that has come and will come in Christ. Today we will begin with hope. We're going to be in Isaiah 9, John chapter 1. I want you to know that as human beings... Made in the image of God, we are hardwired for hope. We're hardwired for hope. To say it another way, we are hoping, longing, desiring beings. We are hoping, longing beings. I want you to think about how this regularly gets expressed in our lives, often with our lips. We are hoping, longing beings. It maybe goes something like this. I hope I get that Christmas bonus this time of year. Some of you are hoping for that. Maybe you've mentioned that. A kid has asked for a Christmas present, and you're like, we'll see. I hope I get that bonus, maybe. Uh, Maybe this was true for you this week. It's on our lips, in the car, on the way to Thanksgiving. I hope my family can get along during the holidays. We're hoping, longing beings. Some of you are sitting there thinking, I hope interest rates will go down. I hope the stock market will improve. 
There's some of you that are uh, really into soccer, which I don't understand, by the way. I sat there for 90 plus minutes and watched a 0-0 game. Uh, it was brutal, but some of you love it. And you're thinking, I hope Team USA can advance to the round of 16. Kiddos, some of you are hoping that there are certain things that you might get for Christmas. We're hoping, longing beings, maybe a bit deeper, a bit deeper down in our psyche. Some of us live with these thoughts. I hope I'm not a failure. I hope others approve of me. I hope I'm not alone forever. I hope one day so-and-so will forgive me for what I've done. We all hope. We're hoping beings. We all hope because deep down within all of us, we desire a better future. We've been hardwired as creatures made in the image of God, created for God, for hope. We desire a better future, a better version of ourselves, a better version of this world to live in. To be a human being made in the image of God, living in a fallen world, is to hope. So, the question this morning is not, do you have hope this Advent? The question is, what is your hope in? What is your hope in? Because we're all hoping. You know, one of the downsides of being hardwired for hope is that our hope can get misguided. Our hope can get misordered. And we can start to hope in things that are not strong enough, that are not secure enough, that are not real enough to satisfy the desires and the longings of our souls. We can hope in things that end up devastating us, things that are not strong enough, things that rip. I, uh, this time of year, I love watching the movie Home Alone. It's the best Christmas movie ever, Home Alone. And I was thinking about this, the scene in Home Alone where Kevin's finally free, right? I mean, his parents are gone. They left him at home. He's free. He gets to be the man. He gets to do whatever he wants. He gets to realize his hopes. And so he starts looking around and he goes, man, I need some food. So what does he do? Well, he's a big boy now, right? Mom and dad are gone. I'm the man. He goes to the grocery store. And I love that scene. And the cashier's like, where's your parents? He's, you, know, you, you know what I'm talking about. This is a great part of the movie. And uh, he's responsible now. He's going to get food. He's even buying a toothbrush. And his chest is puffed out. He's got his groceries. And he's walking down the sidewalk. He's the man. And then what happens? Bags rip. Devastated. Groceries everywhere, all over the sidewalk. This is, what, this is the problem with hope. So many of us are like this. We stuff our hopes into things that are fragile and that are weak, like that grocery sack. And all of a sudden, when we think things are going great, they rip. They're not strong enough. And so Advent is an amazing time of year for us to review and reorient our hopes by recalling the biblical story. Here's what I want you to see this morning. Pretty simple. I want to show you four things or give you four reasons why the Christian hope, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the only thing that is strong enough to satisfy your soul. It's the only hope that can anchor you. It's the only hope that won't rip. It won't disappoint you. It is, in fact, what you were hardwired for. Four things about the Christian hope. Number one, the Christian hope, the hope of the gospel, is anchored in an ancient promise. It's anchored in an ancient promise. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, we find the words of the prophet Isaiah spoken hundreds of years before Jesus was born. It's a, it's a pretty incredible message. Isaiah speaks with clarity and with precision about this promised Savior that God would send, this Messiah that Israel was awaiting. Here's what he says in verse 2, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. He goes on in verse 6. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is an amazing promise that Isaiah gives. The original hearers would have understood this as a, as a fulfillment or a continuation of a promise that God made in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as sin has come in and marred and, uh, and destroyed God's creation. God makes a promise. He says that there would come a son, there would come a redeemer, a victor who would crush the head of the serpent, who would undo all of the curses, all of the curse and all of the effects of sin. And, and so Isaiah shows up and he says that that promise is going to be fulfilled, that a light will come and will shine in the darkness and it will come in the form of a son. Now, we must understand that this promise in Israel's history comes at an incredibly dark time. Incredibly dark time. Israel has wandered far from God. In fact, all we have to do is look back at the end of chapter 8. If you have your Bible open, look back at the end of chapter 8. In Isaiah 8, verses 18 through 20, we see that the Israelites have wandered so far from God, they've so turned from God that they are consulting mediums and magicians. They're looking for help in mediums and magicians rather than in God. Verses 21 through 22 tells us this, that they're distressed and that they're hungry, that they will roam through the land, that they will look enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And so they're, they're angry at their rulers, they're angry at God. It says they will look to the earth, so they're looking to the creation, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, that's what they find, they will be thrust into thick darkness. So what's going on here? The Israelites, they're looking toward the earth, they're looking to human resources to fix the world, to fix themselves, to, um, to, to give them hope. They're looking to the experts of their day, they're looking to the scholars of their day, they're looking to the solutions of their day, they're looking everywhere but to God to rescue them from darkness. Yes, we are in trouble, they say. Yes, we are in darkness, but we can overcome it ourselves. That's what's going on in Isaiah chapter 8. That's the spirit of the age in Isaiah's day. It sounds a lot like our day, doesn't it? Yeah, we're in trouble. Yeah, we have problems. But we got this. The next politician, the next campaign... We got this. We can figure it out. Sounds a lot like our day. You see, human nature hasn't changed much from Isaiah's day to our day. What we need to understand about sin is it's not only the problems that we create when we turn from God, but it's the problems that we compound when we try to then be our own savior, fix our own world. It's in the midst of this kind of mess that Isaiah shows up with a promise from God. He says, yes, you've made an absolute mess of things, but light is Coming. And I want you to notice what Isaiah says about the light. Look back at verse 2 again, Isaiah 9 2. Let's read it again. It says, The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Where does the light come from? What does Isaiah say? Where is the light going to come from? Well, he says it's going to come from outside of you. It's going to spring upon you. It's going to shine upon you, spring upon you. How many of you have ever been in a dark room? Maybe parents, you've been sound asleep in a dark room and a child comes in and they spring on the light. Or maybe the other way around, kids, 
You've been snoozing and sleeping, and the parents come in, and they spring on the light. What happens to us when light is sprung upon us? It's disorienting, isn't it? It takes a little while to come into focus. We can't quite see it clearly, and, and, and we're, it takes us a bit when light is sprung upon us. Isaiah is saying this is exactly what will happen upon the birth of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ will come and he will spring upon a dark people and a dark world. And at first we won't quite see it and you won't be able to bring it into focus. You see, the Christian hope is rooted in an ancient promise going all the way back. A promise that begins by God who is a creator and a redeemer. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when he promises that salvation and victory over sin and Satan will come. And that promise is passed on through a covenant that God makes with Abram that is then, uh, uh, that is then uh, sustained through the people of Israel despite their sin. It is clarified with precision by the ancient promise, by the ancient prophets. And it arrives, it springs upon us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the Christian hope the first reason that it's strong enough and that it's durable enough for you to go all in on is because it's rooted in an ancient promise of a God who never lies. Point two. In fact, actually, I'll give you points two and three at the same time. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, point two and three. This is rooted in an ancient promise. Number two, it's centered on a person. It's centered on a person. And three, it's rooted in real historical events. In other words, the Christian hope is not a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. In our world today, I don't know if you feel this, it's almost like there's two Christmases that are kind of going on at the same time, right? There's like two stories. There's two things that are happening. It feels like that we're celebrating side by side. One includes like reindeers and elves, and the other includes like wise men and angels. And if we're not careful, it becomes real easy to start to conflate the two. And it's just like this mysterious fairy tale, fun season that we all live through. But we must understand the hope of Jesus, the Christmas story, it's a claim about a real promise, an ancient promise. It was delivered in a real person and it was worked out in real human history. In fact, the gospel writers, they want to make sure that we know this, that Jesus isn't just some fairy tale figure that pops on the scene. The gospel writers, they want us to understand that he is the fulfillment of God's ancient promises. In fact, look at John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, John introduces us to Jesus using images both from Genesis and from Isaiah so that we might know this, that our hope is rooted in a real person who is the fulfillment of God's real promises. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Do you see the images from Genesis that he's saying here? In the beginning, God was there, was creating, was sustaining. And then he gives us the images of Isaiah. He wants us to know that Jesus of Nazareth, as he begins his ancient bios of Jesus, he wants us to know that Jesus of Nazareth, this real man that really lived in real human history, is the fulfillment of God's real promises made to people who live in a world of sin and death. He says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. He's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. He is the child that was given 
and the darkness has not overcome us. Verse 9 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Like the light sprung on, they couldn't quite see him clearly. See it? Verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's stunning. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John begins his gospel this way. He puts it right in our face. He's saying, Jesus of Nazareth is the seed of the woman. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is the light that Isaiah spoke about that shines in the darkness. You see, this is the thing that we need to understand about the Christian hope. It's not a fairy tale. It's rooted in a real person. History will not deny that Jesus of Nazareth existed. His life is well documented. His teachings, his miracles, his following, his unjust arrest, his brutal crucifixion at the, at the hands of, under the administration of Rome's Herod and Pontius Pilate. It's well documented. His, his burial in the tomb, it's documented. A man named Joseph of Arimathea, we know where he was buried. His miraculous resurrection, his appearance before many eyewitnesses over 40 days, his body never found with all of our science and with all of our technology, Jesus' bones have never been found. It's well-documented. It's well-sourced. His disciples giving their lives, testifying to his, to his resurrection. The person of Jesus of Nazareth, whom John calls the true light coming into the world, this man very literally changed human history. We mark time differently because of him. A.D. and B.C. His, his following went from a few dozen disciples and has grown over 2,000 years to 2 billion people across cultures and across the planet. Our hope is rooted in a promise, in a real person, in real historical events, his life, his death, his resurrection. See, John is saying that you can trust Jesus with your life. You can go all in with him. He won't rip on you. His, he, will, he will hold all of your hope. You can put it all on him because he's the true light. He's the one that sprung upon us. They didn't recognize him at first. It took their eyes a while to adjust. He was unimpressive. He didn't look like a king. But the longer that you look at him, the more that you consider him, you consider his life, you consider his, 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 his miraculous birth, his, his life, his teachings, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his appearing, his promised second coming. The more that you look at him and consider him, the more that he starts to come into focus. And then when you see him, you see him in all of his glory, full of grace and full of truth. He's beautiful. What a savior we have in Jesus. John is saying that you can trust him, that you can believe on him. In fact, when you do, when you believe his life for yours, his death in your place, his resurrection is your victory, his kingdom as the future that you really long for, everything will change for you. Everything will change when you go all in on Jesus. In fact, this leads to the fourth and final point. The Christian hope, it's rooted in an ancient promise. It's centered on a person. 
It's rooted in real historical events. And when we go all in on him, when we stuff our hope in Jesus Christ, it gives us life. He gives us life. He gives us life in every season. When Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 9, when he spoke of light dawning on a people in darkness, he's using the image of the sun. That's what Isaiah is doing. He's using the image of the sun. And the sun does two things. It gives light so that we can see, and the sun gives life. The sun gives life. John emphasizes this in John 1.4. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him is light. He helps us see, and he gives life. Did you know that without the sun, there would be no life on the planet? There'd be no life on the planet without the sun. The sun drives weather. The sun drives ocean currents. The sun drives our seasons. The sun drives our climate. I learned, I think, maybe in eighth grade science that the sun uh, gives life to plants. I think that's called photosynthesis. I learned that. Without the sun, all life would eventually decay in darkness. I want you to know that the same thing is true of Jesus Christ. That's the claim of the Bible. Without Jesus Christ, there is no life apart from him. Everything else is, is fickle. Everything else is fragile. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. That's the claim of the Bible. And now, I know that this is a hard truth for some to receive. In fact, there might be some that are thinking, what do you mean there's no life apart from Jesus Christ? I mean, I'm not a Christian, and I'm living, and I'm breathing. And the Bible would say to you, yes, you are. And the very breath that is in your lungs is a gift from Jesus Christ. It's a gift from him. John tells us that all that was made was made by him. He is the word. He is the one who is holding all things together, who is sustaining life like the sun. And he has come once as a savior, calling us into abundant life, calling us into eternal life, and he will come again as judge. And you're either with him or you're not. You either follow him into the way of life or you perish. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. And you might say, okay, well, I know a lot of people that seem just fine without religion of any kind. And I would say to you, well, they might be fine. They might be fine now, but will they stay fine? Will they stay fine? Because we're all putting our hope in something. The things that are making them fine now, are they strong enough? Are they durable enough? Are they like those bags that Kevin McAllister was holding? Or will they rip? Are the things that they're putting their hope in deep enough and durable enough to sustain them for tomorrow? The answer is no. And what about when they stand before God on judgment day? They will. Are the things of this world that we hope in are they deep enough? Are they strong enough? Are they durable enough? See, Jesus is clear about this. Jesus says in John 8, verse 12, he said, he's either a lunatic or he's Lord, by the way. And he says in John, 18, John 8, verse 12, he says, he says um, I am the light of the world. There's no other light. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have life. Jesus goes on, he says, I am the bread of life. Unless you eat my flesh, you will not live. You will not be satisfied, he says. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father, but through me there is no life apart from Jesus Christ. And I understand that this is a hard truth. It shocks the human ego. In fact, to receive this truth takes humility. It's kind of like, imagine if, 
for Christmas, you open up, you're, at your, you're gathering with your family and your in-law gave you a present for Christmas and you open it up and it's a weight loss book. <laughs> what would it take to receive that gift with joy? <laughs> It'd take a lot of humility, wouldn't it? It'd take the humility to go, well, got a little love handles here. Um, maybe, maybe I help me drop a few pounds. Maybe they love me enough to use their resources to help me live. It would take a lot of humility to receive that gift of joy. This is a hard truth. It takes a lot of humility. The gospel's like this. It takes a lot of humility to receive this gift. But when we humbly receive Jesus, the scriptures tell us that he gives us the right to become children of God. Look back at verse 12, John 1 verse 12. When we humbly receive him, when we see him clearly, when we receive the gift of light and life. He gives us the right to become children of God. This is stunning. I want you to think about the implications of this. It means that those who receive Jesus as the only source of light and life are reborn. We're reborn. We're made sons and daughters of God. It means that everything that is his is ours. Colossians tells us it means that our lives are hidden in his life. It's like the life of Christ, the work of Christ, the real historical works of Christ, his life, death, his resurrection. It's like it envelops our life. We're hidden in him. We're hidden with Christ in God. This is incredible. It means that your past is forgiven. And some of you, I know that your past haunts you. What, not only what you've done, but maybe what's been done to you. Your past haunts you. It says that your past is hidden with Christ, and his life is your life. It's good news. It means that our present is anchored. Our present is secure. There's nothing that will happen to you that God will not work in the end for your good because you belong to him. He will glorify you and raise you with Christ. This is good news. It means that our future is bright, that we have a hope of heaven, a glorious inheritance. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, we have this glorious inheritance that is waiting for us. It's not perishable, and it, it, it will not be defiled. It will be revealed to us in the end. Your future is bright. This is good news. This is what it means to have hope in Christ. This is good news. It's not flimsy. It's not faulty like the things of this world that we can put our hope in like material things that rust, like political agendas that fail. It's not flimsy and flaky like markets that crash, like careers that don't fulfill, like relationships that fall short, like the approval of others that is never enough, not Jesus Christ. When we put our hope in him, he is life. He is anchor in every season. You can go all in on Jesus and you will not be disappointed. Now, this doesn't mean that you won't face trials, that you won't encounter sufferings, that you won't have heartaches. In fact, many of you know that this is not true. Many of you have gone all in on Jesus and put your hope in Jesus and you still are experiencing, maybe even some of you now are living through setbacks and sufferings and heartaches. What it means, though, is that in the midst of trials and in the midst of sufferings, we have something real to throw ourselves upon, something real to cling to, real hope that produces life even in the darkest days because the light has come. The light has shone in him is life and in him is light. 
want you to know that you have a reason for great hope this Advent. You have a reason. You have, <laughs> you have a lot of them. No matter what's going on in your life right now, the gospel of Jesus Christ will not disappoint you. You can throw yourself upon him. You can cling to him. I want to encourage you as we begin this season, would you celebrate the hope that you have in Christ? Let that be central in your life. It's anchored in a promise of old. It's centered on a person. It's rooted in real events of history, and it gives life in every season. It will never fail you. What a savior we have in Jesus. As we close, I just want to ask you to take a moment and would you just reflect? Would you consider this question right where you are? What does it look like for you? James tells us not just to be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word, to apply God's word to our life. His word is living. His word is active. What does it look like for you to allow the hope of the gospel to anchor you this Advent? What does that look like for you? What does it look like for you to put Jesus at the center of your hope? I'll give you a few minutes to reflect and then we'll pray and respond. God, we do thank you for your word and we thank you that we can look to it and we can trust it. How it reveals to us your mercy and your grace that you've given us in Christ, that you've kept your promises. We thank you for Jesus, that his life can count for our life, that his death is in our place and that his resurrection is our victory. And we thank you that all, for all that that means, all the hope that that gives. Would you, Holy Spirit, in this time, help us to, to, to know that deeper in our being, to live in light of that hope, the living hope that we have. And would you help us Lord Jesus, to be a people that live each day, each moment in light of the future hope that we have. Not only have you come just as you promised, but you will come again. And when you do, you will deliver to us the hope of heaven, our glorious inheritance. Until that day, help us to be a faithful people, a people that are not stuffing our hope into things that are too weak, that are too flimsy, that are too fragile, but to cling to you, to throw ourselves upon the hope of the gospel to live as a people of hope in a world of uncertainty. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at redeemerrr.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.